We want to continue our study in the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 17 this morning and looking at the fall of religious Babylon. And uh, Brother Craig read through those verses, and I'm sure as he was reading, you're thinking, what does that mean? And hopefully we'll help you to understand what some of that means as we go along. It starts out in verse 1 by saying, There came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon the many waters. Years ago, when the luxurious Titanic was launched in 1912, it was the largest, most magnificent ship that had ever been built. Spanning the length of three football fields, it boasted an interior more magnificent than some of the most beautiful mansions at that time, and it offered to its passengers some unprecedented luxuries as they boarded. They had a heated swimming pool, a Turkish bath, a squash court, and a dog kennel. They said that the first-class dining room served ten-course dinners. Some of you can say amen to that. That's something you can relate to, food, right? Many of the world's wealthiest people bought tickets. Uh, the first-class parlor suites were, in today's equivalent, about $50,000 to get one of those tickets on that maiden voyage. It was touted to be unsinkable, and thus they only carried 20 lifeboats on the Titanic, a fraction of the 64 that were needed to evacuate the 2,228 passengers on board. Because the ship was quote-unquote unsinkable, the captain and the crew members ignored the warnings, as you know, about the icebergs that were in the northern Atlantic, and they posted only a half-hearted watch on the fatal night when the ship struck an iceberg. Water, they said, immediately began gushing into the ship, flooding enough of the airtight compartments to make sinking inevitable. Evacuation began, but with the limited lightboat capacity, the crew who were untrained in evacuation, only 705 people were saved, leaving 1,523 people to perish with the ship. The tragedy of the Titanic demonstrates how man's pride and arrogance leads to destruction. It was pride in the ship's prestige and luxurious various things that, he had, that they had on board that prompted many of the rich and the prominent people to make that voyage. It was arrogance to think that the ship was unsinkable. Thus, they dismissed the need for more lifeboats, and they did not properly train the crew for evacuation. Early in our world's history, there was a city that was founded with the same pride and arrogance, and it brought a similar humiliating end to that city. That city was none other than the infamous Babylon. Babylon is the second most frequently mentioned city in the Bible. It appears 287 times in 253 different verses. And all of those references are never positive. Babylon's origin was pagan. It was humanistic. It was rebellion against God. 
Old Testament scholar by the name of Charles Dyer said this. He said, for nearly 2,000 years, Babylon was the most important city in the world. It was the commercial and financial center for all Mesopotamia. The arts of divination, astrology, astronomy, accounting, and private commercial law all sprang from Babylon. Though Babylon no longer exists today as the cultural and the financial powerhouse that it once did, it's still, its influence influences a lot of the world today. In the first book of the Bible, we learn that Babylon was the site of the Tower of Babel, man's first attempt to establish a world order apart from God's involvement in it. The last book of the Bible, here in Revelation, we see a revival of that city Babylon, and it becomes the center of the financial world and it is dominant during the tribulation period. The book of Revelation reveals to us that when the Antichrist seizes reign of the world government, his administration will be divided into three power centers. First of all, Rome will be the political base, and then Jerusalem will be the control center for religion, and Babylon will become the financial and the economic hub. Revelation chapter 17 that we're looking at today and over into chapter 18 will explain some of the things that we talked about last Sunday night in chapter 16. Chapter 17 is the fulfillment of those prophecies that are given there. In this chapter, we witness the fall of the great worldwide church that flourished after that flourishes after the rapture, after the saved are taken up and were caught out of this world to be with the Lord. There, there will be a worldwide religious system. That religious system is already at work today. It's already seen in, in, our, in our world. All around us, there's a great movement. There's a great movement for a one-world government. There's a great movement for a one-world church. We can see all of that that is taking place around us. Isn't it interesting, even as Brother Ted talked to us a couple of minutes in Sunday school about, uh, about India, and some of the different places in the world where they're facing uh, food shortages and high gas prices. And it's not just America where all these things are taking place. It's worldwide. And what, we see, what we've seen in the past that was focused maybe on one nation now has become worldwide. And we'll see after the Lord comes back and takes us out of here, those of us who are saved and believers at the rapture, there will be a one-world church and there will be a one-world government and a one-world religion and a one-world monetary system. I was reading something just the other day where they were predicting that in 2023 or 2024, we will be changed. Already things are in the making to change us into some type of a uh, not Bitcoin, but that type of a currency to get us away from the dollar and get us away from the currency that we have now. I'm just simply saying that we're seeing shifts in our world that are moving towards the one world currency, government, religion, and all of those things that are, that are involved. And that system is already at work today. We're witnessing also, I think, what is a great falling away the Bible talks about that's going to take place in the, in the last days. I was talking to somebody about it just recently that I think in many of our churches where we're seeing the, 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 world, the world's music, all of the rock that is brought into churches, and in many situations even the hard rock that's brought into churches, 
I'm convinced that many of those people are worshiping another Christ. They're not worshiping the same Christ that we worship. And we're seeing a whole change that is taking place. It's already reached the place where Bible-believing Christians, people that take the Bible literally and try to live a holy life and a godly life, we are increasingly being placed under attack. And the only way to succeed in the eyes of the world is for us to conform and to become tolerant of what their beliefs are and what their opinions are. And they're going to try to force us to conform to that. But when people go off on a tangent and they begin to worship and dabble into things that are forbidden in the Word of God, then that's where we have to draw a line as Bible-believing Christians. We have to say we can't cross that line. We're not going there. So I want us to look at some of the things in this awesome chapter here and see if we can identify what's happening here. First of all, I want you to notice the Babylonian mother. This is the first development of the system in verses 1 through 6, and we may not get through all of this today, but we'll see how far we can get in our time. Two things that I jotted down, they're not in your notes, but I think are very important, and that is this. The true church of Jesus Christ is seen in the Bible as a pure virgin, as a pure virgin. Look over a couple of chapters to Revelation chapter 19 with me and look at verse 7 and 8. Revelation chapter 19 and verse number 7. It says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. Who's the Lamb? That's Jesus. The marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Who's the wife? Who's the bride? The church. Verse number 8, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. The true church is represented as being the pure virgin that is the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. The false religious system is seen as a harlot, and we'll see that verse, they use the word whore and harlot a number of times in Revelation that have abandoned the truth and prostituted herself for personal gain. And unfortunately, we see a lot of religion in our world today that's all wrapped up in personal gain. In every age, there, have been, there has been the harlot, you might say, who persecuted God's people. There are five things that are stated in this chapter about the woman and about the religious system that she represents. First of all, notice her universal power. Her universal power. In verse number one, it says, there came, out, there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. The angel with, this ter with the terrible vials have just wreaked havoc upon the earth back in chapter 16. In fact, we ended up in chapter 16. I was thinking about this today, this morning, earlier. In verse 21, he said, There fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. A talent is about a hundred pounds. And men blasphemed God because the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. I was driving this morning, and for some reason I was thinking about this hundred-pound hailstone. Can you imagine if a 100-pound hailstone hit this building, what it would do to this building? 
And in a hailstone, I mean, in a hailstorm, you don't usually have just one stone coming down. You've got a lot of them coming. If a bunch of them hit this building, I mean, falling from the, from the clouds, it would be like just an explosion, just to blow the building out and destroy it. Can you imagine what it would be like with a storm like that that takes place? The plague of the hail, and it says, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. And there are a number of other things we talked about earlier in that chapter, but I just got to thinking about the destruction that is going to come. Thank God those of us who are believers, we're taken out at the rapture. We won't be here to go through all of that. But after all of this is going on and taking place, then there comes one of the seven angels, and he talks about the power of the, the universal power of this harlot church and what's going on there at that time. This angel explains to John all that has happened. The scarlet woman, the great whore, as the Bible calls her, has one master craving, and that is power. This religious organization wants to be powerful, should do anything for power. Verse number 2 says, With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have made, been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. She will court the kings of the earth and give them anything they want as long as they will give her power in exchange. We see a lot of things going on in our world today that people will do just to get more power, don't we? Just to get power. The name of this woman is Babylon. Her home is the city of seven hills. Look, if you will, at, at verse number 9 of chapter 17. It says in verse 9, And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. She is identified prophetically with Rome, which is the, the city of seven hills. She is an old apostate religious system that is linked somehow with Rome. She is in an ecumenical mood, wooing the apostate religions back into this one religion. So there's the universal power. Secondly, I want you to notice her unique position. Look at verse number 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. When you think about her unique position, John sees her sitting on a scarlet-colored beast. Now let me just say this. Scarlet in the Bible is the color of Satan and the color of sin. If you'll flip back a couple of chapters to chapter 12, look at Revelation chapter 12 and verse number 3. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 3 says, And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. So, he says, a great red dragon. Who's that talking about? Stay with me, verse 12, chapter 12, look at verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out. Who is it? That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out in the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So the red dragon, red is a picture of Satan. It is also a picture of sin. Many of you know the verse. You've memorized it, some of you. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 8 says, Come now, let us reason together, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So red and scarlet are a picture 
of sin and Satan. And he says here this woman, this religious woman, is sitting on a scarlet-colored beast, which represents sin or Satan. The scarlet beast represents the final stage of the Gentile world that is now headed up here in chapter 17 by the beast. The one world empire is thoroughly anti-Christ, against Christ, and against everything that is holy and that is true. You see, the revelation, the, the tribulation period is God primarily dealing with the nation of Israel to bring, bring Israel to the point of recognizing Christ as the true Messiah. And so God's dealing with Israel, and as he's doing, dealing with Israel, Satan is involved, and everything that he does is the opposite of God. It's opposed to God. He doesn't want Israel to turn to the true and the living Messiah. Some years ago, I visited Israel. I think it was back in the late 80s. And when I went into the city of Jerusalem, there were banners. They have, they have many high-rise buildings, apartment buildings and condos and all that sort of thing. And they're constantly building them because Jewish people are constantly moving back to, to Jerusalem. And on the, hanging out the windows on top of some of these condos, they had big banners that just simply said, Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. The Jewish people are looking for the Messiah to come. Unfortunately, he's already come, amen? Jesus already came. He is the Messiah, and they missed him. So they are looking for the Messiah to come. In, in, in Revelation, in the tribulation period, the devil's doing everything he can. He's, he has actually gotten them to follow the false Christ, the Antichrist, but there'll come a point where they'll recognize he's not the true Christ. He's not the true Savior of the world and they'll realize that they're following the false Christ, and as a, as a nation, Israel will turn to the true and the living Messiah. Remember last time we talked about the different plagues that came, and those plagues, many of them are pictures of the plagues that Moses brought on the land of Egypt back in the Old Testament when God delivered the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. They recognize that. They're familiar with that. God is working again with something that they're familiar with to help them to understand that the true Messiah has come and that Jesus Christ is the true and the living Messiah. And then notice her unlimited prosperity. Look at verse number four. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abomination and filthiness of her fornication. In Rome's wealth, it was so great that it dazzled the kings of the earth. And the wealth of this mysterious Babylon, the great mother of harlots, as verse number 5 calls her, is amazing. At one time, the wealth of the Roman system, just in the United States, was about $34.3 billion. Most of that wealth was in real estate. The wealth of the Vatican City is so great that it could end world hunger not once, but twice, if it were used for that purpose. The amount of the church that the church owns in land, all of it tax-free, is an area that is large, they say, as the, the province of Alberta, Canada. In tax disputes between the Vatican and the Italian state, it was revealed that the church's portfolio of securities alone was worth $5.6 billion dollars. Thirty years ago, the Vatican Bank had $10 billion invested in foreign countries. 
and foreign companies. The vaults, they said, hold at least one metric ton of gold. $31 million were seized from the Vatican Bank by Italian authorities during an investigation into money laundering. $2 billion was paid out for settlements from the church for sex abuse cases just in the United States alone. Other churches are wealthy, but the Roman church exceeds them all. Look back at verse number 4 with me again and notice what it says. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Notice then the unholy passions. The unholy passions, he says at the end of verse 4, that that golden cup is full of abomina abominations. Something that is abomination means to be excessively hated by God. When he says it's an abomination, he hates it exceedingly. And filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and the abomination of the earth. Well, that doesn't sound like anything I want to be a part of. Amen? The word abomination is oftentimes in the Bible used as a synonym for idols. It deals with idolatry, idolatrous worship. And here's the interesting thing. Idolatrous worship and immorality are never far apart. The mystery Babylon is very ancient. It's been traced all the way back to Nimrod and to the building of the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis. Nimrod is described by God as a mighty hunter. He was the world's first empire building builder, and he taught people to ignore their fears of God. At his death, he was deified and worshipped under various names. At first, that worship was secret, and only select ones were, were initiated into his mysteries. The religious system of Egypt and Greece and Phoenicia all stemmed out of Babylon. The chief priest of the old Babylonian religion was known as the Pontifex Maximus. The Babylonians taught that Nimrod was reappeared as a son born after his father's death. Supernaturally, he was born by Nimrod's widow. The worship of Nimrod very quickly became the worship of the mother and the child, the mother being known as the queen of heaven. When Babylon was captured by the Medes and the Persians, the headquarters of Babylon was moved to Pergamos. Attalus III bequeathed Pergamos to Rome when he died in 133 B.C. When Julius Caesar became the head of state, he was elected Pontifex, Pontifex Maximus, and the title was held by the Roman emperors for many, many years. When Constantine became a professing Christian, the ancient Babylonian mysteries were simply transferred bodily to the church. You see, Constantine made Christianity the state religion, you might say. And so all of a sudden, all of the idolatrous worshiping things that went on were illegal. And so in order for them to spare themselves, they simply brought a lot of that stuff into the quote-unquote Christian church, and many of the idolatrous things became a part of and were incorporated into the church. Pagan temples became Christian churches. Pagan gods became Christian saints. Pagan festivals became Christian feasts. Pagan customs became customs of the church. The Virgin Mary became queen of heaven. Little by little, all the trappings of paganism became an established part of what is known as the religion of Christendom. 
Such Babylonian articles of religion as worship of the mother and child, the dogma of purgatory, the use of holy water, bells and candles, absolution by a priest, the celibacy of the priesthood, and the dedication of virgins all became articles of the church. They were all incorporated in the church. And in AD 378, Damascus, the bishop of Rome, was appointed as the Pontifus Maximus. And he became at once the head of the professing Roman church and the legal successor of the sovereign Pontifus of Babylon. Now notice her untold per perse persecution in verse number 6. Her untold persecution. Verse 6 says, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. John said, I wondered with great admiration. John was astonished greatly by what he saw. It didn't surprise him that pagan Rome should hate and persecute the people of God. But that this woman, this apostate church at the end times, should be drunken, the Bible says, with the blood of the saints. That's what was ama amazing and astonishing to John. The, the atrocities that were brought upon the people of God, God's people, could fill whole books of, uh, of history. Some of you have read the little book, The, the Trail of Blood, and there are a lot of things that are, that are in there. Torquemada, for example, the first inquisitor, inquisitor general, was appointed to his office in 1483. He celebrated his promotion to the so-called holy office by burning alive 2,000 prisoners of the Inquisition. Sovereigns, princes, royal ladies, learned men, magistrates, ministers of state were all suspects. Torquemada burned at the stake over 10,000 people. During the regime of his three immediate successors, there was another 8,000 that were similarly destroyed. Altogether, they said there were some 200,000 that were persecuted with lesser torture chambers in the Inquisition. But Rome was not finished with her brutal work. At present, Rome treads softly. But during the tribulation period, she will again have that old bloodthirst that she once had. It'll be seen once more. And John sees it at the end of, the, of these days, and he says in verse 6, I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So we get a little picture of this, of this Roman church or of this Babylonian mother that is pictured here for us. That's part of the tribulation period. Remember all of that's leading up to one thing. Look at verse 14 and we'll stop there for this morning. Verse 14 he said, These shall make war with who? With who? The Lamb. But notice this, and the Lamb shall what? Overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called the chosen and the faithful. Remember this, no matter how powerful the devil may be, and no matter how hard the devil fights against the people of God, whether it's the church today or whether it's the nation of Israel during the tribulation period, remember this. They may make war with the Lamb, but the Lamb shall overcome them. Amen? Amen? He is King of kings, and He is Lord of lords, and I'm thankful that we are on the winning side. Amen? Amen. And if you know Christ as your Savior, 
you're on the winning side. Now you say, well, what does all that have to do with us today? We have to be very careful what we believe. Amen? And make sure that what we believe is based on this book, the Bible. This is our final authority in faith and practice. It's the Word of God. Be careful, because the closer we get to the coming of the Lord, and the closer we get to when that Antichrist sets up his reign, and when you have the one world church, the more we're going to see churches that will just sort of overlook doctrine and overlook the things that we believe and try to just get rid of those things and make us all the same so that we all fit in together. And all that matters is just, just love God, that's all. It doesn't matter what you believe or what you think. Just love God and love each other. No, I, I think there's some distinctives in the Bible that we believe that make us different. Amen? And the reason is because we are following the Lamb of God and we're following His book, the Bible.